1: Welcome back to another episode of the Hindu Studies channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. You can find out about my background at rajbalkran.com. But more importantly is my guest today. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Long, professor of religion and age and studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, USA. Hello, Jeffrey, and thank you for joining us. Hello, good morning. Hello. It is now Thursday morning. Uh, <laughs> during. <laughs> Eastern locally for our interview. Um, Jeffrey is in Pennsylvania and I'm in Toronto. And of course, our listeners will be in the the timeless time of whenever they hear this. But good morning to you and good day to you all listening. Now, we are talking today about a very interesting book. Dr. Long has served as the editor for a special issue of Religions. This is available online, public access to all of you. The link is included in the interview write-up. The topic... For The title for this publication is Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. I imagine there'll be a great number of you interested in hearing more about this. Why don't you tell us a little bit, Jeffrey, in terms of how this came
0: about? Okay. Well, uh, there were actually two separate panels uh, at uh, the AAR. Uh, Let's see. This this would have been uh, four years ago and then three years ago. Uh, the Society for Hindu-Christian Studies held a panel on reincarnation, and uh, that panel was a Hindu-Christian dialogue on this topic. And then that was followed up one year later at Dhanam, uh, Dharm Academy of North America, which also meets at the AR. And uh, that panel was organized by, by myself. Uh, I had been so inspired and so uh, interested in uh, the panel the previous year, the Hindu-Christian Studies panel. And the response from the audience, it was a packed audience uh, at that panel, their response was so strong, I thought, we need to continue this conversation. So we had the second panel at Donham, and uh, one of the attendees of that panel was an editor for Religions, and he contacted me very shortly thereafter, and he said, how would you like to compile these papers, and maybe papers from some other scholars, uh, into a special issue? And he described how at Religions, uh, when they they do these special issues, if you get a sufficient number of contributions, they will publish it in a hard copy and also make the PDF available. And so it's essentially an edited volume. And uh, I thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to get this conversation to a wider public. Uh, It's a topic I find fascinating. Uh, It was a big part of what drew me to the study of this field. And so uh, I thought it would be great to get other scholars involved and talk about this topic from a wide range of perspectives. It's, of course, a controversial topic. There are people who believe there is such a phenomenon as reincarnation. There are people who don't believe there's such a phenomenon as reincarnation. And then uh, whatever one's stance on that, there's such a wide range of literature about it, uh, work about it. Uh, that there's a, it's a vast field uh, that is there to be explored. And uh, it's something that uh, has not been covered as much, I think, by scholarship recently. It has very often been more of a topic, I think, uh, for uh, the popular media. Uh, you get a lot of New Age books on reincarnation and so on. But I was interested in something that was serious, that was scholarly, uh, that would explore this idea and uh, explored from a wide range of perspectives. So we have uh, people who are theologizing and philosophizing about it. We have Hinduism scholars who are looking at how the topic's been treated in various Hindu texts and traditions. We have Christian theologians doing the same from their perspectives. And uh, we have a a handful of write-ups also on the science behind uh, the idea of past life memory Uh, and uh, also a couple pieces on reincarnation beliefs in the West and uh, in uh, Western literature. So uh, we really cast a wide net, and I think as a result, it's a really rich volume. Uh, There's really something there for everyone in terms of interest there. Literary studies, philosophy, theology, it's all there. So it obviously sounds like a far-reaching and
1: fascinating um, uh, collection uh, of articles in this book. Now, there are a couple of questions I have based on what you've said. Now, you mentioned that this is a controversial topic because there are those who subscribe to the view of um, reincarnation and those who who do not, Right, who, whose beliefs would counter the possibility of uh, reincarnation. Now, tell us the stance of the authors. Do the authors who contribute here uh,
0: necessarily advocate for or against a worldview? Well, you have both. And in fact, that's what I was trying to uh, achieve uh, as well. So there would be a robust conversation. So uh, probably the two pieces that really take the strongest stance one way or the other on this are the one by, by uh, Bradley Malkovsky, who teaches at Notre Dame, uh, my alma mater, uh, and uh, then uh, my own piece, uh, my own contribution to the volume, uh, I'm taking a, I guess you could call it pro reincarnation stance, if it makes sense to phrase it that way. And, uh, he's taking an anti, uh, reincarnation stance based on Christian teaching and, uh, we get along very well. It's not the kind of polemic where you have people, you know, mudslinging at one another, but we've laid out the arguments. We've presented the theological perspectives or why this might make sense, uh, in terms of a religious worldview, in terms of, uh, Arguments about, uh, for example, the nature of God, the nature of ethics, the relationship of ethics to what happens to us materially in the world. And so he's laid out uh, an argument for why, from a Christian perspective, this would not be an acceptable view. And I've laid out, from the perspective of a uh, modern Vedanta tradition, uh, why it's an attractive view. And so uh, those two, I would say, are probably the more polemical articles. Uh, Most of the articles don't so much take a stance on the subject as they do survey what has been said and what has been written through the centuries about the topic. So we have a number of articles on various uh, Hindu traditions and uh, stances they have taken. Uh, So, for example, Chris Chappell uh, has a really good article where he it's in fact a fairly broad survey. It's not only Hinduism, but he brings in Buddhism and Jainism as well. there is uh, a piece by um, uh, Itamar Theodore on the idea of rebirth and the Bhagavad Gita and uh, there's a piece by Jonathan Edelman. he's writing from a Vaishnava perspective. he's also giving sort of a, I would say an advocacy uh, perspective as well on you know why the idea of rebirth makes sense to him but he's it's very much uh, A textually based piece, uh, looking at uh, what Vaishnav theologians have said about this topic uh, through the centuries. And there are also some surveys of debates uh, between Hindus and Christians in India uh, at different points in history. Uh, There is a a piece by Gerard Cholas and uh, Usha Cholas Chauhan, Uh, they've written together uh, on an 18th century Jesuit work written in Sanskrit, uh, intended to refute the idea of rebirth. So this was part of the Jesuits efforts in India uh, early on in the colonial period uh, in uh, attempting to argue with Hindus about theological topics. And uh, then there's one by Nalini Bhushan uh, on the early 20th century uh, about uh, polemics between Hindu students and their missionary teachers uh, on the idea of rebirth. And uh, she looks at some really interesting material uh, there from the early 20th century. Uh, So, a variety of articles and a variety of perspectives uh, on the topic, and uh, some taking a stance one way or the other, others more uh, really just looking historically at what has been said about this particular idea. So, I have a a general question,
1: and then I have a, a specific question regarding your contribution. Generally, could you say something to our listeners about the distinction between theology versus religious studies and how that distinction um, plays out in the contributions, and then probably of more interest to our readers, tell us specifically about the argument that you make and why you're inspired to do so in favor of uh, reincarnation.
0: Okay, okay. So uh, in terms of theology and religious studies, uh, and of course many of us do both, uh, but these are distinct activities. And so uh, religious studies really operates within the humanistic tradition and it is looking at religion as a human phenomenon, as a social phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon, a historical phenomenon, and so uh, it doesn't particularly privilege religion as a discourse that is uh, in some way distinct or unique or or different from uh, other discourses. It's it's a human discourse, and it therefore has uh, it, it influences and is influenced by politics, economics, culture, other kinds of social historical factors. And so religion as a, as a human phenomenon is the object of study of religious studies. Theology uh, investigates questions from the perspective of a religious tradition. Uh, that doesn't mean that it does so in a, uh, on, a, on the basis of a sort of blind faith or unquestioning uh, adherence to the teachings of a religion. In fact, it's just the opposite. The classic definition of theology in the Christian tradition is faith-seeking understanding. This was a term coined by St. Anselm back in the Middle Ages. And the idea is that, okay, you've received these teachings from a tradition in which you're situated. Now you're trying to understand what they mean. Uh, You're trying to understand how they might apply to a new situation that the tradition has not encountered before. Uh, Or you're trying to understand some large question of meaning, some question that, that's facing us as human beings uh, from the point of view of that tradition. So uh, that's how theology, as I would understand it and define it, is distinguished from religious studies, is that uh, religious studies is operating in this more uh, sort of religiously neutral space, you could say. That doesn't mean it doesn't have its own presuppositions, uh, but uh, they aren't religious presuppositions. It's really a uh, Uh, more of a secular discipline, whereas theology, uh, again, is operating from inside of a tradition. And I would say theology is akin to philosophy. Uh, Philosophy uh, sort of has one foot in both of these worlds. Philosophy is, uh, again, not necessarily operating from within a specific tradition, so it's sort of like religious studies that way. But the kinds of questions philosophers take up are similar to the questions theologians take up. Uh, questions about the ultimate nature of existence, questions of meaning, questions about morality, and so on. And so uh, theologians, and uh, uh, you could say theologians are uh, the kind of people that religious studies scholars might study, uh, that the kind of work theologians do is what is often taken as an object of study for religious studies, whereas for theologians, that that is also their subjectivity, that is the world they're inhabiting. And they are making meaning using the categories of the tradition that they identify with. And in terms of how this plays out with the articles? So in the articles, we have theological approaches and we have religious studies approaches, or what could be more broadly called historical or cultural studies approaches. So the articles that are trying to take a position on reincarnation, like, is there such a thing or not? why might we want to believe in re- reincarnation or my, why, why might we not want to believe in reincarnation, those take a more theological stance and they're, they're operating from within specific Hindu or Christian traditions. Um, the, Ankur Barua has a philosophical piece also uh, on uh, how one would evaluate the evidence for reincarnation. I would say that's more of a philosophical piece. It's less the case that he's taking a stance in a tradition and more that he's investigating the question. Uh, from uh, from the perspective of logic, from the perspective of reason, reflecting on experience, uh, internal coherence of arguments, and so forth. So that's more of a philosophical stance. Uh, the ones that talk about, you know, historically, what what have Hindus said about reincarnation? What have Christians said about reincarnation? That that's more, I would say, operating from the field of religious studies. Uh, most of the articles I would say are religious studies articles, and uh, three or four. Uh, are either theology or philosophy.
1: Um, Great. So now, maybe let's dig into your article. You know, one life, many lives. Uh, um, I believe the subtitle is an internal Hindu-Christian dialogue. And tell us, um, maybe firstly, whether it's a theological or religious studies perspective, and also um, maybe uh, just summarize uh, your stats and, and why you why you and your reasons for, for that position.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, my piece is uh, very uh, much theological. Uh, it's uh, uh, In fact, it's working with the paradigm of comparative theology uh, as it's been developed by Francis Clooney, uh, who's also a contributor to our uh, volume. He wrote an afterword that's sort of a response and a summing up of all of the articles and the state of the field as it stands. And he defines comparative theology as deep learning across religious boundaries. The idea is uh, the comparative theologian is a theologian, and so stands within a particular tradition, a particular religious understanding, but is looking for knowledge, is looking for insight from another tradition, uh, insight that would otherwise not be available. Uh, The idea is there are uh, things that can be learned, things that all of us, whatever our religious position is, uh, there are things that we can learn from other traditions. And so his career has been as a Catholic theologian who looks very closely at Hindu texts and Hindu traditions, and he derives various things from those texts and traditions that give him insight as a Catholic theologian into his own faith perspective. So I tried to do something kind of like that, and I have a little bit of a, uh, uh, I would not say unique, but maybe somewhat unusual biography in that uh, I was born and raised and grew up and was trained in a Christian tradition, specifically in the Catholic tradition. Um, And uh, I was drawn at a fairly early age to Hinduism and specifically to the Vedanta tradition of the Vedanta Society. Uh, I'm a member of the Vedanta Society. That's the religious tradition I identify with. So I thought, what would it mean for me as someone who grew up in the Catholic faith but is now a practitioner in the Vedanta tradition for me to look across that boundary, to look back at the tradition of my upbringing and see if there's any insight that I could gain on a specific topic that uh, has been uh, a very central one for my own sort of personal life journey. Uh, There's a little bit of autobiography in the book, not too much, because uh, I didn't want to overburden the argument with that. And I, I think it's, it's helpful for people to know where I'm coming from. So I, I grew up Catholic and uh, grew up in Missouri in a small town. And my father died in an accident. He was uh, First, he was very horribly injured. And then he ended up taking his own life, actually, as a result of those injuries. And uh, this all happened from the time I was about 10 years old to 12. He passed away when I was 12. So this was quite a trauma, uh, to say the least, and uh, it was something that got me reflecting very deeply about the afterlife and, you know, just the nature of our existence. Why do we suffer? Why do we die? Why do we have the kinds of experiences that we have? So this really propelled me into, uh, of course, uh, eventually the field of the study of religion and the study of philosophy, my PhDs in philosophy of religion. Uh, and uh, I've also studied theology. My, uh, one of my majors in college was uh, theology. And uh, one, of the, one of the big issues that eventually led me to make the religious choices I've made uh, was that uh, as I reflected on the afterlife and as I, uh, as I thought about what I had been taught and as I began to read and study and learn about what various traditions had to say on the subject, the idea of reincarnation was very appealing to me. I, intuitively, it made sense. And I was coming to this from a Catholic background of uh, where, you know, the afterlife is understood to be heaven or hell. Uh, you know, there's, there's salvation, there's eternal life for those who, who have the divine grace, for those who receive that. And then there is the idea of, of hell. There's the idea of eternal damnation. And in the Catholic tradition, of course, there's this in-between space, which is purgatory, uh, which is not a permanent state, but it's the state to which one goes when one is not yet sort of fully ready for uh, for heaven, not not yet ready for the full uh, beatific vision. Uh, it's a state of purification where you know, one uh, sort of works through issues and uh, atones for things and uh, reaches the point where one is ready to fully receive that divine vision. So that's the Catholic teaching of the afterlife. And uh, I had a lot of questions about that as I was growing up. There, there were certain aspects of it that appealed to me, but the idea of rebirth to me seemed to be uh, seemed to make more sense in a certain sense. I uh, the 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 whole heaven and hell concept was difficult for me because uh, my observation about myself, my father, the other people in my family, the people I knew, was that you know the, the idea that eternity that That you could go to a state forever and ever, based on this very very brief lifetime, Uh, that didn't make sense to me. Uh, My feeling was that none of us was really uh, purely good or purely evil. Uh, That if the universe is fair, uh, of course that's a big if, but if there is some kind of cosmic justice at the end, then uh, none of us really deserve to go to heaven or hell. That that if uh, the next life is a reflection of our moral state now, it's probably going to be kind of like what we're experiencing now. It's going to be a mix of joy and sorrow. Uh, It's going to be a series of learning experiences. And so the idea that we're in a way already in purgatory, uh, I think is the way I was thinking of it when I was a a child. I was thinking uh, maybe this is purgatory and we just keep coming back here until we finally have learned the lessons we need to learn and have become perfected by our experience. And, uh, most of us aren't there yet, but we can see our lives as a process of learning and a process of, of deepening our understanding. And that, uh, if there is such a thing as an afterlife, that this process would just keep going and would continue on until it reached its logical end. So this was what intuitively attracted me. Uh, so, um, as I, studied different religions as I began to learn more and investigate these questions. I found uh, the the worldview and the tradition and the practice that was closest to what I uh, was drawn to that, that made the most sense to me was what I found in the Vedanta tradition. And so I eventually, I mean, I've, I've joined that tradition. I've been part of that tradition now for a number of years. Um, the challenge I posed for myself in this article was to say, is there something that, you know, even though I have turned from the traditional Christian teaching to this Hindu concept of reincarnation, and of course it's shared by other traditions as well, Buddhism, Jainism, a lot of traditions teach some form of reincarnation. Uh, Even though I have made that move, is there something that can be learned by me from the Christian refusal uh, of the idea of reincarnation? Is there some insight that that uh, refusal on the part of the Christian tradition uh, is that there's something that can be gained from that for someone like me who finds the idea of reincarnation making a lot of sense. And what the article basically argues, uh, I, I give my argument for you know why I find the idea of reincarnation to be appealing. Uh, but then uh, when uh, when I turn to the comparative theological mode, uh, what I see is that, there's a very strong emphasis in the Christian tradition on the uniqueness of each of us in this given lifetime, right? That, that each of us uh, in our lifetime, if you look at a singular lifetime, uh, each of those lifetimes is a unique and singular contribution to the universe, uh, to, to the overall richness of creation. And I realize that that's not something I would want to deny, even as someone who believes in rebirth, right? Even as someone who believes that this life is not our only life, it's one chapter in a much, much longer story, but each chapter is important and each chapter is significant. And so if there's something that people like me who believe in rebirth can gain from Christianity, uh, it would be that uh, we, we not lose sight of the uniqueness and, the, uh, and how special each lifetime is and how each moment is. And uh, of course, uh, a criticism of reincarnation is the idea that it could lead one to put off one's spiritual practice. You say, okay, I have many lifetimes to do this. Let me just have fun this life and not worry too much about God or any of that. And, uh, and of course, uh, what, uh, what Christianity could remind us is that, uh, well, no, each lifetime is a special opportunity. And there's even that saying in the Hindu tradition that a human rebirth is rare. There's no guarantee that You're going to be a human being again for a long time. Um, This is a a chance to learn and to grow and to take advantage of what the human form has to offer and uh, that we not waste it. So uh, that sense of urgency that traditions have that teach one lifetime is something that we can also uh, incorporate and assimilate uh, even as we continue to affirm that we have these many lifetimes to do all of this because one life just is not enough. So... That's a short version of it anyway.
1: Thank you for sharing uh, your personal journey with us. Uh, I appreciated hearing that, and I imagine our listeners will as well, and for contextualizing the stance you take and and the reasons for which you take that stance. Um, One question about reincarnation. Um, um, First, maybe just very briefly define what you mean by reincarnation, because I think we all have a sense of what that may mean, but it may also mean different things to different people. That's right Secondly um, Reincarnation As you mentioned Is proper to what We may call The uh, the Dharma traditions Right Or um, The religions of, um, of uh, The Indic subcontinent South Asia uh, Hinduism Buddhism Jainism Sikhism Now You present it uh, Rightly so As at odds With Christianity However That wasn't necessarily Always the case Or exclusively the case Was it So if That's you could right. just tell us tell us, we probably should have, uh, we probably should have defined this a little earlier in the conversation, but tell us what you mean by reincarnation and tell us, uh, maybe making reference to the volume, uh, whether or not this idea was always at odds with uh, the Christian faith.
0: Okay. Very good. So, uh, yeah, in terms of what I mean by reincarnation, and and that's an excellent question because each tradition has its own understanding of this. And, uh, Even within what we call Hinduism, I mean, Hinduism is, of course, made up of many, many sampradayas, many, many traditions, and each has its own particular take on uh, the physics, you can call it, or the metaphysics of reincarnation. Uh, The Jain tradition has a very elaborate um, philosophy behind uh, what happens in reincarnation. So, uh, the view that I hold is uh, the view that one finds in in the Vedanta tradition, uh, and of course there're many Vedanta traditions as well but the basic idea is uh, is found in the bhagavad gita that this physical body that we typically in a lifetime identify with ourselves you know if uh, if i cut my face when i'm shaving i say i cut myself right it's like we identify the self with the body and that's one of the sort of the primal ways in which we differentiate self from other is well i am what is in this body over here, right? This is me and everything else is not me. And one of the core teachings of Vedanta is that there's a fundamental error involved in that self-identification. That self is in fact pure consciousness, pure awareness, unlimited by the boundaries of time and space and causation. And what is actually occurring according to Vedanta is we are witnessing this whole, play of time and space through the medium of this physical body but the physical body is not the self and uh, it could be analogized to uh, a chariot or uh, in modern terms uh, it would be a car uh that we're riding around in uh right and of course uh, uh I don't know about Canada but in the US uh, people tend to also really identify with their cars if you dent someone's car they're very upset with you <laughs> but uh Uh, We identify with this vehicle that is allowing us to interact in the physical world in this sort of matrix of time and space uh, that we're in. And so uh, when that physical body, when it breaks down, when it no longer functions, what do you do? Where do you go? Well, according to uh, the Gita, uh, you take on another body, you take on another form, uh, and you continue on in the journey. And this was the teaching that I found so reassuring after my father had passed away. And when I when he was injured, uh, he was uh, uh, mostly paralyzed. I mean, he could not move very much at all, just a little bit. And uh, I had the understanding, even at the age of 11, I thought, okay, my father is not this body, right? This body was had become a prison really for him. And. This is true of many people who are suffering from various kinds of diseases and ailments, or people who are in terrible accidents. The body becomes a prison. So, if your body can become your enemy, it's not you, right? It's it is it is this distinct entity that is either working with you and for you, or that can be set against you. So, that's not an airtight philosophical argument, but uh, it's a, it's an intuition I think that that undergirds a lot of this uh, sort of philosophy of reincarnation. So in terms of the Gita, you know, the Gita compares changing bodies to changing clothes. And Krishna says in the Gita, you know, that there is nothing to fear from this, right? The wise are not uh, deceived by these changes uh, from one body to the next. So he's reassuring Arjuna, of course, in in the Gita that uh, uh, death is not final. And uh, this is very reassuring to all of us because... Uh, we die, right? We're, we're in this world where we die. We, our loved ones die. Uh, these physical bodies pass away. So the teaching of Vedanta is that, uh, no, this physical body is the temporary form. It's the vehicle through which the consciousness experiences. And when the vehicle no longer functions, the consciousness re-identifies with another uh, piece of the spatial and temporal continuum, another body. And continues on its journey. So that's the, at its most basic, the idea of reincarnation, as I understand it. So that that your essential self uh, is not limited to this one physical body, uh, but that it, uh, it it keeps re-identifying with different forms as it's passing through uh, the different stages of its journey. And this is sometimes compared to, uh, in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, it's compared to a dream. Uh, so, uh, you might have a series of dreams over the course of a single night. Uh, you might, uh, have one dream where you're, uh, in one place, you know, maybe you're walking through a city and various people are speaking with you, different things are happening. And then you have another dream and you're flying through space and you're in a spaceship and other things are happening. And then you have another dream and you're back in your own house. And so... Uh, then of course you wake up and, uh, you go about your day, but from a Vedanta perspective, this is just another dream state that you're in. And in each dream, you have a dream body, you have the form that you're identifying with. And so each of these dream states, each of these lifetimes that we experience, uh, includes some body, some, some form that we're identifying with, but we are actually the, the consciousness or the witness that is Uh, experiencing through the vehicles of each of these forms. So that's the basic Vedantic view and uh, the one that I tend to hold. Uh, Now, in terms of your your other question about Christianity, it's true that uh, there has not always been this clash between uh, Christianity and uh, uh, Indic traditions uh, about rebirth. Uh, And indeed, it's not even only the uh, Indic traditions that had caught this idea. If you look for the beliefs of uh, the Celtic peoples, for example, uh, uh, as described by uh, various records from medieval Europe and uh, from the Roman Empire, uh, rebirth was part of the teaching of of Celtic religion. Uh, There were Greeks who believed in rebirth. Pythagoras taught the idea of rebirth. Uh, You can find it in uh, Book 10 of Plato's Republic and also in the Phaedrus. Uh, you even find some of the same metaphors and analogies, like the body is a chariot, uh, in the Phaedrus. You find this also in the Upanishads and in the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, the belief is actually uh, has been around for a long time and is very widespread. And uh, in fact, uh, within the Jewish tradition, there are uh, there are groups that affirm the idea of rebirth. Uh, um, among the Hasidim, uh, there is a belief in rebirth and reincarnation. And uh, it was present in the, uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world when Christianity first emerged. And uh, this is controversial, uh, but uh, there are some verses in the Bible that are at least suggestive of the idea of rebirth. Uh, one of them that comes to mind is uh, in the New Testament, there's the story of the man who was born blind, and uh, Jesus heals him, and Jesus' disciples ask him, uh, was he born blind because of a sin that he committed or because of a sin that his parents committed? And the question's an interesting one because he, if he was born blind and if one of the possibilities in the mind of Jesus' disciples is that he was born blind because of a sin that he committed, well, when did he commit that sin? Uh, did he commit it in the womb? There's not a lot you could do in the womb. Uh, you're kind of limited. Uh, it seems to suggest that some idea of, of a prior existence was present uh, at the time in the culture. And there's some evidence that that's the case. Uh, Jesus answers the question in an interesting way. He says it's neither of those. He says that it was for the glory of God, basically that the man was born blind so that he could be healed and, and that God's mercy could be shown in that way. Uh, but it's interesting that the disciples seem to think that the man could have committed a sin at some prior point before birth uh, to have led him to be born blind. So that, that sounds very familiar if you're coming from a Hindu or Buddhist or Jain uh, point of view. Uh, and uh, there were other early Christians who uh, uh, had some idea of rebirth. If you look in writings of, uh, of course, uh, Origen was one of the very famous ones uh, who uh, taught an idea of rebirth. Uh, he's often uh, credited with being the first Christian theologian or one of the first Christian theologians His ideas were condemned uh, at a uh, church council uh, about four centuries after the time of Christ. So for those first few centuries, uh, it seems like there were Christians believing in rebirth. And of course, if you look at the Gnostic uh, traditions, uh, which were apparently pretty widespread, uh, there were uh, many Christianities at one point. uh, This was also a view found uh, that one can find in the the, the Gnostic gospels, for example. Uh, So it was not, absent from Christianity, but there was a point at which what eventually evolved as the institutional church, at least in the West, uh, did you know specifically condemn this idea. And uh, Bradley Malkowski's article uh, in, uh, in the volume, he doesn't get into that history, but he gets into the, the theology of why, from a Christian perspective, this idea of rebirth would not be acceptable. But there have been many Christians uh, for whom it has been quite acceptable. And Lee Irwin has an article on reincarnation beliefs in the Western world. And uh, there are today a lot of Christians who believe in rebirth. And according to uh, a couple of recent surveys, about one in five Americans believes in rebirth. And that includes a lot of Christians. So um, it's not necessarily the case that this is a point of contention between Hinduism and Christianity. I would say it's a point of contention between a specific understanding of the nature of the human person that's prominent in what has become orthodox or mainstream Christianity, and a view of personhood and of beinghood, I would say, uh, in Hindu traditions. But uh, yes, there are versions of Christianity that are amenable to the idea of rebirth. And so I think uh, uh, this, this allows for an even richer conversation potentially uh, even than what we were able to have in this volume. Would you say that the potential references uh,
1: to rebirth, of course there are no overt ones, but there are some that are suggestive that they are um, limited to um, the Gospels, to the New Testament?
0: Uh, I don't think so. I, I know um, uh, in particular because there are the uh, uh, Jewish traditions that affirm rebirth. Uh, there are some places in the Hebrew Bible, I'm less familiar with the Hebrew Bible, but uh, I'm—I've been told there are references uh, that that could be interpreted uh, as rebirth. The standard interpretation of the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible is that it was sort of a of a state of of uh, nothingness. Uh, they call it you know Sheol, uh, kind of like the, the realm of Hades in, in ancient Greek thought. That you know you were just sort of in a shadow realm. You existed, but it was not the full rich existence of a living being. Uh, but uh, I, because there were Jewish traditions that, that affirmed this idea of rebirth, uh, it must be at least compatible with, uh, with uh, some of the earlier writings. And uh, I know in terms of, uh, if you look later on in Judaism, uh, in the Talmud and in, in the, out of the commentarial literature, and in Christianity, like among the early church fathers and so on, I mean, there, were, there were people who believed this. And uh, uh, one of my old teachers, actually, Paul Griffiths, has, has written a piece on the idea of rebirth. And uh, I don't think he personally subscribes to it, but he doesn't see it as a bar to being a good Christian because there were early church fathers who did hold this view and that it was compatible with, with Christianity. So uh, there is, there is a, an intra-Christian debate to be had, I think, about this topic. Now, the
1: interest, um, the interest that religions took in this topic at the Donham panel is um, just a correlate, I think, of the 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 huge cultural fascination that we have with with the idea of rebirth and reincarnation. I mean, in terms of among Westerners who probably hail from a Christian context. Now, this one in five Amer, uh, these one in five Americans, they are probably not adherents to the Vedanta society or more particular, uh, Indic or Hindu um, tradition. No. And yet, and yet they hold this belief. Now, a conjecture for us. Why do you think belief in rebirth is so prevalent among um, practicing Christians today?
0: Well, if I don't know how much my own experience can be used as a guide, but uh, I, I still identified as a Christian for many years after I had begun to believe in rebirth. Uh, I think it's just an idea that makes a lot of sense to people. And in fact, Malkovsky even talks about this in his article, you know, why is the idea of rebirth attractive to many Christians? And of course, you know, he he thinks that this is a mistake, but he talks about some of the reasons in his article uh, that it's attractive, and they echo some of my own reasoning. Uh, if you have a theistic worldview, so if you believe in God, if you believe in a loving God, and or at the very minimum, a fair and just God, then... It's logical to think that the afterlife is going to be uh, some kind of an extension of this one because, uh, again, uh, the idea that uh, after just one lifetime you're ready for, for heaven and eternal life, you, you've achieved that sort of perfection, uh, that uh, seems pretty far-fetched if we're very frank with ourselves and the fact that we have all kinds of imperfections, all kinds of issues we need to be working on. And uh, at the same time, uh, the idea of eternal damnation really seems to conflict with uh, deeply with the idea of a loving God, because you know, just if you reflect to, to your own upbringing, uh, you know, if we think about our parents, uh, when our parents would punish us for being naughty as we were growing up, uh, it was not because they hated us; it was because they loved us and they wanted us to to do better and they wanted us to avoid certain mistakes. So if we experience difficulties or hardships in this world, and if this is something like karma, right? If this is, uh, you know, uh, if from a theistic perspective, this is, is God's way of trying to gently guide us toward uh, toward a better way of being, uh, then it, it is with the aim that we would improve. And an eternal damnation from which there's no hope of escape, there could be no improvement from that, right? That That is not a punishment that is being meted out uh with the intent of of aiding you in some way it just seems sadistic and then if you add to this the idea that god is also all-knowing and therefore created all of these people knowing they were going to go to hell right knowing they were going to have that experience uh then uh, it's almost as if they were created for the purpose of suffering for eternity this doesn't sound like a lot of wild at all so i think there are plenty of christian reasons to recoil from the idea of eternal damnation and then i i know there are christians who've written that uh, i forget i don't know if it was saint francis of assisi or one of the other saints that said that because god is so loving we can hope they were saying that we can hope as christians that no one is in hell right that it's you know that everyone's going to be forgiven eventually uh, at the same time uh as there is this idea of 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 justice and of, loving god and fairness and and uh, not you know the idea of of that there should not be some sort of eternal punishment i think a, a lot of christians are equally disturbed by the idea that uh you know it's it's all god's grace and our choices have no role to play in it uh because you know there, there's also the view that someone could be a terrible person someone could be hitler you know in a given lifetime and then they repent on their deathbed and they go to heaven uh because they found jesus and uh, that that strikes many of us as problematic also, I think. Uh, so I think for many Christians, there's, there's this uh, desire for, uh, to borrow a term from Buddhism, sort of a middle path where, yes, we have to be accountable for our misdeeds. We have to atone for things that we've done wrong. At the same time, there needs to be this divine mercy where we have chances to, uh, opportunities to do that atoning. And so, um, it's possible the idea of purgatory came out of, of this same sensibility, because uh, the idea of purgatory, you start to really see more in the Middle Ages and medieval Europe. Uh, it's not as present in, in early Christianity, uh, though, again, there are hints of, of it uh, in Scripture. But the idea gets really fully developed later on, because I think people were thinking about this. and uh, But, of course, this raises the question, if we still have a lot of work to do in purgatory, what was the point of this one lifetime on earth? What were we doing here? Uh, And my own thought process growing up was, well, maybe we're already in purgatory. And that's very close to what the idea of rebirth really is teaching, that if we think of purgatory as this process of gradual attainment of perfection or real, real, in in Vedantic terms, realization of the perfection that was always there, but that has been hidden by our ignorance, Uh, that as this cloud of ignorance is slowly removed through trial and error lifetime after lifetime, our characters perfected, we're making different kinds of choices, uh, then uh, then it makes a lot of sense, right? And uh, then you can have that from within a Christian framework. One of the reasons, uh, there, there were other reasons as well, but one of the reasons I ended up uh, moving into the monastic tradition uh, and out of Christianity was I found that as someone who wanted to be a theologian and who wanted to write about these things and talk about them in a very public way, I would always be in conflict with the church about this. Uh, it would have been a constant uh, struggle. And uh, whereas I find that tradition that I identify with now and that I inhabit now is very supportive of all of this, so this was part of my transition. But you know, if I had not been, if I had no aspirations to be a writer or a theologian, and if I was just sort of You know, uh, work. You know, living within the Christian tradition. uh, I'd probably be one of those Christians who believes in reincarnation. Uh, There was there was this sort of additional pressure of of uh, the work I wanted to do that I think propelled me out of the tradition uh, eventually. Uh, But I think a lot of these folks who are uh, who are Christian and who believe in reincarnation that that's the interpretation they have that works with their with their own understanding and their. They're fine with that. I mean, it, if it doesn't bring them into conflict with other Christians, if if they're able to inhabit their church community and hold that belief and uh, be comfortable with it, I think that's, that's what I see a lot of them doing. Uh, and people, friends of mine, people I've spoken with who are in that situation. Uh, it just doesn't bother them. And in fact, they say, oh, why did you have to leave over that? We believe in reincarnation and we're still Christian. Why did you have to leave? It's like, well, I wanted to write about it and that gets you into trouble <laughs> as soon as you start writing about things then uh, then you have people questioning okay well then are you is do you really have allegiance to the tradition or, and so on
1: this is all uh, very fascinating so um if i may share about 15 years ago i took my first uh, religion course it happened to be an introduction to hinduism and it was the first time that i seriously entertained um, why one would ascribe to a um, samsaric or reincarnation, rebirth worldview. You mm-hmm. um, know, I was working full-time at the time. I had uh, uh, left my my bachelor's degree, but uh, two years before I was um, enrolled as a philosophy major. So I was always um, seeking in terms of big questions. And mm-hmm. when I took this Intro Hinduism course, uh, it dawned on me, uh, I was an undergrad, now having done a, a few degrees, I have a different perspective, but then this, this was, these were new synapses firing in terms of, well, whoa, these questions, these big questions that we're studying Plato and Aristotle and Socrates to answer, wait a minute, uh, other traditions have radically different ways, not only of addressing the questions, but of asking the questions. And so I remember having this elusive moment where I was, um, Having maybe a bite on campus with with uh, a classmate, and he said, "Well, you know, you know, how could anybody believe in reincarnation?" And I said to him, "Look, who knows what the truth is? But as a human being, three things come to mind in terms of my own personal experience hmm. um, that may serve as evidence, if I was so inclined. One is um, people are born with innate tendencies that seem to go way above and beyond." Nurture and nature. Sometimes yes. people are born with specific skills, i.e., to play the guitar. Very yeah. behaviors. So, one sympathetic to this worldview would say that's one area of the human condition that can explain their right. Secondly, sometimes you meet people, and we have this expression in English, "kindred spirits." Right. What on earth does that mean? Does that mean that the divine created spirits in batches, and then we find each other in this <laughs> one life? Well, somebody who believes in rebirth will say, "Well, there's somebody that you have." Known from a previous lifetime, right. And thirdly, and at the time, at that time, most important to me, uh, because you know, I, I I wanted to hold on to this uh, romantic idea uh, that the world was just, that <laughs> the universe was just. This was important to me. I had the, had an intuition that we don't invent justice; we discover a sense of justice within. Mm. Us. And even from a very early age, you you, you know, you, you, you smack a kid in the playground right upside the head, and he's going to ask you, well, "Why did you do that? It's not fair." Right seems to be right. innate. It's a visceral response, and if that is the case, and if there is justice in the universe, then an omniblue, uh, an omnibenevolent, omniloving, omniscient divine, this problem of where does evil come from simply evaporates in a samsaric, uh, a rebirth worldview. In that one can say, look, uh, it's our own uh, previous karma. Now, right, that's another can of worms. I just want to share with you that and that I've had similar similar questions that I've asked myself, and, and I can very clearly see why um, more people on this planet believe in rebirth than not. Right, right. Um, it's fascinating that for whatever reason, our dominant culture is not. And one wonders what, what culture could look like, irrespective of a religious uh, worldview, one, uh, or religious allegiance one wonders what our culture would look like um, were we to subscribe to this notion of rebirth and and i imagine that in many cases it would be it would be quite fruitful which is why there are those who um believe in it even against um the dictates of the
0: religious tradition well i just i i was what you were saying was resonating very deeply with me and i've i've had many of these same thoughts and in fact what you were saying about innate tendencies I have some quotations in my article from uh, Swami Vivekananda where he's, he's making a very similar point. But what you were saying about what society would be like uh, if more people believed this. Now, one could debate whether this has been the case in India or not traditionally, but certainly I think part of the logic of the idea of reincarnation is that any being one meets could have at some point been very dear to us, right? In fact, the Buddha is attributed with saying something very similar to that. You know, anyone you meet was at some point, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. And that if we think that way, then uh, we're we're less inclined to other people, right? I'm using other as a verb, right? We're, we're more inclined to see others as part of ourselves and as uh, beings with whom we may have had very close association. And so, I think it creates a certain openness to people. Uh, and again, uh, in, this might not apply universally you know, to, to everyone who believes in rebirth, but if, if you're thinking very seriously about the implications of rebirth, I think it, the logic of it is it, it leads to a certain uh, level of compassion. And certainly when you think in terms of prejudice, uh, racial prejudice, uh, gender bias, and so forth, uh, if we have all been every conceivable type of person and every conceivable type of being at some point or another, then uh, having biases against others on the, on that basis is really the ultimate in superficiality, right? Because it's taking the physical vehicle and using that as a basis for making judgments about people. And uh, But we're all, we're all beings of consciousness. So uh, I, I think it has a lot of positive implications. And I write about this a little bit in the article as well. Uh, according to the logic of the idea. Again, what people have done with it historically has been different. Like as you say, with the idea of karma, that could be abused. We can look at someone else's suffering and say, well, that's their fault and be hard-hearted about it. Uh, at the same time, it's part of our karma that we have now met that person. So uh, we have a choice to show compassion or not. And so uh, you know, thinking karmically, I think, uh, if we do it in the right way, it does us a lot of good. Um, you were asking about the scientific uh, portions and uh, I have a little bit of this in my article and Ankur uh, Barua goes into this uh, in his piece as well as does Lee Irwin uh, in his piece on uh, reincarnation beliefs in the West. And uh, the, uh, of course the uh, sort of star of the scientific investigation of, of the idea of reincarnation is Ian Stevenson. Uh, who was at University of Virginia and who studied, uh, accumulated thousands of cases of young children who gave accounts that appeared to be accounts of memories of of previous lives, some of which could be verified uh, that, uh, you know, it could be investigated whether uh, a particular child's memory actually correlated with some person who had lived uh, now, one criticism Stevenson's work has received, and including from from another from one of our authors, Jonathan Abelman, uh, he wrote a piece, uh, not for this volume, but he wrote another critical piece on uh, past life memory investigation. And, and of course, it's full of problems if you think in terms of uh, how children can be prompted to say things. Uh, <clears throat> children basically want to keep adults happy. And so... Uh, This has been shown again and again in cases where children have been asked to testify in court uh, that, uh, you know, leading questions and uh, positive feedback from the adults uh, can all result in children coming up with all kinds of accounts that uh, might not be something that's actually really uh, reflecting what's in their minds or what's their, uh, what's, what's in their memory. But uh, Ian Stevenson's successor, uh, Jim Tucker, Uh, has written a couple of books on this topic. And in fact, one of the things that uh, I guess you could say reignited my interest in this uh, subject was when Tucker appeared on NBC News uh, a couple of years ago and uh, with an account of a boy named Ryan Monroe from Oklahoma. And uh, Ryan had all of these memories, uh, seemed to be memories of another man's lifetime. And this was not a famous person. This was not someone who... Uh, you could look up on the internet and find out about it wasn't someone who was well-known, so he we could have heard about it from family or at school. This was a, a relatively unknown person, uh, but uh, he had appeared once briefly in an old black and white film back in the 1930s. And uh, when Ryan and his mother were looking at a book on the golden age of Hollywood, uh, They turned a page and he sees a photo of this man standing in the background uh, from a still from this movie. And he says, that's me. And so uh, they began investigating. They they took uh, the family. It did not believe in reincarnation. They were Southern Baptists. They didn't believe in rebirth. So they weren't prompting the boy to say these things. They took him to Jim Tucker and uh, the case was very thoroughly investigated. And it turns out that, that, more than 50 items that uh, Ryan claimed to remember turned out to have been the case about this man named Marty Martin, who'd lived many years before. And uh, the, the details were so accurate. Uh, there was only one point that apparently a, a, at the beginning they thought was not correct. Uh, he had uh, suggested that he had died at the age of 61, but according to Marty Martin's birth certificate, he died at 59. Uh, but then further investigation proved that the birth certificate or the death certificate was wrong. And Martin had, in fact, died at 61. So uh, Ryan was right about that, too, and uh, was was uh, correct on a fact that was not well known and not in the public record. So this is a really remarkable case. And, and so Tucker uh, is of the opinion that uh, this has to be explained scientifically. And he turns to quantum theory and in the last couple of chapters of his book, Return to Life, he develops a quantum model of the person. And I don't know if Tucker has any knowledge or background at all in Vedanta or Buddhism or any Indian traditions, but if you change the terminology, he's basically giving a Vedantic worldview. Uh, He's talking about uh, life as a series of dream states and so on, and it's really quite remarkable. I tried to get Tucker to also write an article for this volume, but he was too busy, uh, unfortunately. So uh, uh, maybe if the volume circulates a little more and uh, becomes known out there, uh, maybe we'll get him for, for volume two, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, um, this, uh, this, uh, the scientific side really has to do with this investigation of past life memory. And you have to be super rigorous, of course, because, again, it's so easy to suggest things to children And get them to say what you want uh it has to be spontaneously you know uh it has to come from them spontaneously it's it's not being done under laboratory conditions and uh uh and something else of course uh is that uh uh, cases from places like india and thailand you know where a lot of stevenson cases came from if we want to be really rigorous we probably need to rule them out because if you come from a cultural background where you're already inclined to believe in rebirth that's going to affect your uh, your data, but uh, one of the things that's so remarkable about the case of Ryan Monroe is his family did not believe in rebirth, and uh, they were Southern Baptists, and according to that tradition, uh, ideas like rebirth are, you know, the work of the devil. So um, the, the, Ryan's a great case because uh, his family was not inclined to believe this. Uh, in fact, I think they were so disturbed by it, that that's one of the reasons why they sought out Tucker, who's a child psychiatrist, because they saw this as a problem. Uh, So it was not something that he was prompted to do, uh, that he was encouraged to do by people who wanted to advance the idea of rebirth. Uh, It's uh, it's a real case of someone who uh, has really an incredibly detailed wealth of knowledge about another person. uh, And... This knowledge uh, based on all you know all of the you know all of the things that uh, Tucker excluded, uh, like the internet and so forth, uh, this knowledge ha- could only enter Ryan's brain if our mechanistic, materialistic understanding of how knowledge works is deeply flawed because there was never any physical contact between Marty Martin and Ryan Monroe. And yet Ryan Monroe has all of this detailed information from Marty Martin's life in his consciousness. So uh, consciousness has to be working in a non-localized way. And that's, of course, very consistent with what the Indian traditions have been saying for for thousands of years, uh, that consciousness is is transcendent of time and space and causation, and uh, that we're... Observing this world through our minds and through these bodies as through a sort of filter, uh, but that the reality of consciousness is is uh, translocal uh, in a way that allows for things like these sorts of memories. So, uh, I think uh, I think Ryan's case is very really very suggestive. It doesn't necessarily prove a specific model of reincarnation, like Vedanta, for example, it can be very consistent with the Buddhist model also, where. Uh, it is uh, the sort of karmic traces of a previous life that uh, are reappearing in a new form. Uh, but uh, the the science behind it uh, all has to do really with this uh, memory idea. This is obviously quite fascinating,
1: uh, and and Tucker's work alone uh, would prove for an interesting podcast. Well, oh, that'll be fantastic! Yeah. Now, um, are there any other articles in the book um, that we haven't mentioned, that you'd like to say a word or two about
0: it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there's an article by Nicholas Seurat uh, on reincarnation and the work of William Butler Yeats. And uh, he brings in a really interesting perspective, a Western perspective uh, from the Victorian period. Uh, there have been Westerners fascinated by this idea for a long time. And, uh, you know, there's, we've, we've talked about that 20, 20% figure um, there's no way to know this, but that 20% probably goes back at least into the 19th century because uh, there were Victorians. There were, of course, people like Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists. Uh, there were the Transcendentalists and uh, some of the Romantics. And then you have people like William Butler Yeats, uh, Aleister Crowley, you know, people very interested in things like uh, ceremonial magic You know, and pushing at the boundaries of the Western esoteric tradition. And reincarnation is very much part of that tradition and that way of thinking. And I think it's, uh, I'm really glad that we were able to get his article as well, because even though the title says Hindu, Christian, and scientific, I I didn't want to be dogmatic about that. Uh, But I wanted to cast a fairly wide net while still having some cohesion to the volume. Uh, I should also mention Ted Christopher's article. Uh, It's called Science is Big Problem, Reincarnation's Big Potential, and Buddha's Profound Embarrassment. And uh it's it's an interesting article because uh he's uh uh looking at the fact that of course, you know, we've been talking about Tucker and we've been talking about past life memory and quantum theory and so on, but the mainstream scientific world would would not say that this is an idea that has been proven or that's even provable or maybe even within the uh the sphere of science. Uh and yet, you know, you have the cases like Ryan popping up. And um, there's also been uh, this phenomenon of of more recent times, and I don't want to get too polemical here, but there have been people in the Buddhist tradition in the West who've been saying basically that the idea of reincarnation is dispensable from a Buddhist perspective. That, uh, well, yeah, the Buddha taught that, and Buddhists have believed that for hundreds of years, but you don't really need to believe in rebirth to be a good Buddhist. Well, that may be true, but it seems like uh, really uh, bending over backwards for an Asian tradition to fit into a kind of, uh, into Western biases, basically that, uh, you know, we've, we've got uh, this, uh, as you said, you know, the dominant worldview in America is and in the West generally has not been favorable to reincarnation. Of course, on the one side, there are those Christians who just don't believe it on religious grounds and they believe in the one lifetime model. Uh, But of course you also have a sort of a materialistic perspective that, would say that this whole question is just silly, right? That uh, uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's no reason to believe that we're anything other than this collection of of uh, chemical compounds that we call the body, and once that stops functioning, that's it. And uh, so, uh, I think uh, the argument can be made. Well, Christopher's making the argument in his article that uh, to the extent that Buddhists feel that they need to accommodate that worldview, uh, that might not really be necessary. Uh, that, uh, uh when we look at things like, uh, this, this, uh, the more, um, uh, the more rigorously, uh, examined past life memory cases, uh, when you look at those and, and as Tucker says, these cases demand an explanation uh, the Buddhist tradition already has an explanation built in very nicely. And so there's no, there's no need to sort of do this extra move of kind of bending over backwards and, uh, saying, oh, okay, no, we, we don't really need that idea. Uh, so uh, that's an interesting piece uh, that Ted Christopher has included. Um, in terms of other articles, uh, see if there's any I haven't mentioned. Gerald Larson has a really good one on how uh, past lives work, how uh, rebirth works in the Tsakia tradition, um, which, of course, is his main area of expertise. Um, Steve Rosen has a really good one on reincarnation uh in the vaishnava traditions uh and uh i think i've now mentioned uh, every one of the articles at some point or another in our discussion but it's a very rich collection and i do encourage anyone who's listening to check it out and the best thing is it's free uh you can download the pdf you don't have to if, if you like it so much you want to buy a A physical copy that exists in the realm of faith and time and causation. you can. (laughs) But if you want to download the PDF, that's there too.
1: So it's your choice if you choose the physical book incarnation or the online uh, electronic incarnation. Exactly. exactly. uh, Of the soul (laughs) of of, of your findings. Um, So we have obviously taken uh, more than enough of your time for today. So before we close, why don't you tell us what you're working on right
0: now? Okay, right now I'm working on a textbook on Hinduism in America, and I'm excited about this book because I'm trying to do something a little different from uh, previous studies. Uh, there's been work on the fascination of Americans with Hinduism, uh, probably the most famous one is Phil Goldberg's American Veda, and there's been a lot of really good work on the uh, Hindu diaspora in America and uh, people coming from India, from Nepal, various parts of South Asia, various parts of the world, uh, settling in America and building temples and and developing a uh, an American Hindu sensibility. What I've been trying to do in this book is to show how both of these are coming together. Uh, the subtitle of the book, the title is Hinduism in America. The subtitle is a convergence of worlds uh, because particularly as the uh, Hindu community in America uh, has now been here for a couple of generations, at least, um, there's more and more overlap uh, with the community of uh, people from uh, not of, of South Asian descent, but who found interest, uh, found a, a nurturing life path uh, through these traditions. And so increasingly you have uh, this overlap. I mean, for example, if you, just, you can see, uh, you know, a group of uh, children, uh, school children, mainly of uh, South Asian descent, uh, being given a lesson in Vedanta by a white swami, right? This is not uh, an unusual thing. Uh, so th- these worlds are converging. Uh, there was a time when they were quite disparate uh, and quite separate. Uh, the type of person who wants to preserve their tradition and pass it on to the next generation and is concerned to conserve things in, in the way that they were done back home is very different from the outlook of, of someone who is experimenting with something that for them is a new tradition and they're willing to uh, experiment with it and change it and adapt it to themselves. These are outlooks that can clash uh, very clearly, uh, but there's been more and more convergence uh, in recent years. And so, uh, I'm looking at the, the whole phenomenon of, of uh, um, both uh, South Asians, uh, Hindus bringing the tradition into the Western world, and also the fascination, the fascination by many Westerners. And also, of course, the extremely disturbing fact that while there may be Westerners who are very drawn to Hinduism or who find particular Hindu ideas attractive, uh, at the same time, there's still a lot of racism and a lot of prejudice against actual South Asian practitioners. Uh, so I've talked about that as well. Uh, racism uh, going back to, uh, of course, the Asian Exclusion Act of 1924. There were the Bellingham riots in 1907. Uh, you know, a lot of negativity uh, against people of South Asian descent in uh, the Western world. Uh, and at the same time, you know, you have the fascination, you have the people who were. Uh, giving Swami Vivekananda standing ovation at the Chicago Parliament of World Religions. So uh, the book really casts a very wide net, but uh, uh, it's, it's intended to be a textbook. It's intended to introduce college students and any interested lay people to this whole complex phenomenon.
1: Sounds like fascinating and important work. We'll look forward to reviewing the book in the not too distant future. Um, we've been speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Long, full Professor of Religion and Asian Studies at Elizabethtown College. We've been speaking specifically about the book he's edited, a collective volume called Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. This is actually available online. The link is in the description of this podcast thank you very much jeffrey for speaking with us today thank you thank you so much for having me until next time uh, i'm your hindu studies channel host dr raj balkaran uh, for the new books network take good care and keep reading